1: Taylor, this has been one of the most watched deals, but there were a lot of questions whether it was going to get over the finish line. May still not, let's be clear, and you pointed that out at the top of the show uh, rightly, but some movement from at least a regulatory perspective in favor of it getting done. We're, of course, talking about T-Mobile and Sprint. So let's get into it. Nabila Ahmed is Bloomberg's M&A reporter, part of the team covering this deal. And we also have Bloomberg Intelligence telecom analyst and so much more, video game guy, Matt Canterman, a frequent guest on this show. Nabila, let me start with you. You and your team broke the news yesterday and really caught people's attention on a sleepy, sunny, sunny Sunday afternoon here in New York City, at least, that this might Actually happened. The FCC was getting the concessions they needed. Tell us what moved the needle here. It was
3: certainly a Sunday afternoon well spent. <laughs> um, so basically, the FCC agreed to a bunch of commitments that the companies um, decided to give them. So this deal was announced more than a year ago. These companies have been going at it for more than a year. Um, and finally, over the weekend, um, following discussions with the FCC, they said, "Okay, here's a here's a list of commitments. Here's a list of things we're prepared to commit to to get this deal over the line." That includes selling. Off part of their prepaid business it also includes guarantees around access for rural areas a broadband access for rural areas as well as price freezes over the three-year period that will take them to build out a new nationwide 5g network
4: So that's really what caught my eye there, because so much really of the last few weeks, even with Huawei, it's all been about the race to 5G. So uh, Matthew Canterman, let me bring you in here. Really, does this all come down to 5G? Who really benefits the most here?
5: 5G is a big part of it, and it's a big enabler, but it's not just 5G. Particularly on the prepaid side, if you look at what's happening, um, the DOJ in particular, the FCC as well, really looks heavily at the HHI indexes. And you would see massive concentration in the prepaid market shares under this merger. So, spinning off Boost Mobile, one of the biggest prepaid brands under Sprint, really helps alleviate that. But all HHI
1: household income.
5: No. No. Uh, the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index. It's oh. a measure of, of uh, market oh, cool. concentration. Obvious. We all knew that. Obviously, um, <laughs> Taylor's looking at me like, "Come on, okay, <laughs> derm." But, but no. But what five G is really going to enable for telcos as it rolls out in the next three to five years is is broader service delivery across multiple new services. Not just delivering wireless high speed internet to your mobile phone, but to your home, to your connected car, to all your other devices. And so the, what they're going to be able to build with the complement of spectrum assets they're going to be able to put together now um, is, a, is a comprehensive 5G network that can go long distances and cover all these rural areas, which is a big, big problem in this country, and then also have lots of high-frequency spectrum in the dense urban areas where they can really, um, you know, widen those channels and really put a lot of bandwidth into the market.
1: So, Nabella, this all sounds great. I mean, it, you know, it sounds like a, a great plan. Why the resistance, then? Why is it taking so long? Monopoly?
3: <laughs> well we are going to go <laughs> anyone? We are going to go from four major players in the wireless industry to three yeah. and that's been the issue that the DOJ and the FCC and the state attorneys general and everyone has been really focused on it and will that really limit competition and from the way that the share prices of AT&T and Verizon reacted today they were also up and that goes to show to you that investors think that this deal won't harm competition in the, uh, and certainly won't boost it. And they think that the market is probably going to become more rational and you'll probably see less of the price wars that um, T-Mobile and Sprint has been marked Matthew, by.
4: talk to me more about that because I thought Verizon and AT&T would sell off. But it's the fact that they are rising means that, yeah, healthy competition is good, but they don't also see them as a, as a huge threat. What does it mean for the big players that we know for a Verizon and in AT&T?
5: Sprint's been giving away service for free, literally for free. They could, they cannot afford to compete because they they don't have the cash. Their balance sheet is in such disarray that they could not invest. They couldn't compete on a network basis. So all they could do is compete on price. With T-Mobile now, they have a much cleaner financial position. They have a much better asset portfolio, and now they can really compete head to head. And so they don't have to just use price as the only competitive lever. They can offer more services like in-home broadband expand into rural areas they can also you know use price to some degree but everyone thinks that this is going to be more rational for them
1: well and to that point i mean i feel like as a consumer i've been watching these sprint ads and they've essentially you know they've got the old you know can you hear me now guy doing their ads and essentially the case he's making is like look it's good enough like you want to pay less like this service is close enough to what you need like just do it like which isn't a super Not compelling. as good as <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah <laughs> but no. But I mean, Sprint right. has
5: effectively become a, a local carrier. Yeah. They focused on the top thirty urban areas and invested in their network there. They just ha- they don't have the money to invest in suburbia and rural America.
4: Nabila, talk to me quickly about the owners. So SoftBank has a big stake in Sprint. Mm-hmm. Deutsche Telekom has a big stake in T-Mobile. What yep. does it mean for the owners? So Deutsche Telekom is going
3: to have majority control of this after the deal goes through. Um, and for Sprint and Masayoshi Sun, it probably is uh, like alleviates a bit of a headache for them because they would have had to probably step in and try to save Sprint because Sprint without this deal would have been under a lot of pressure and may not have survived.
5: And if I could just add you know, Sprint's debt is consolidated on SoftBank's balance sheet, so this is $40 billion of debt that also comes off of SoftBank's balance sheet, whereas if the deal were to get blocked, not only would they keep the debt, they probably would have had to inject $20 billion or so dollars into Sprint just to keep it afloat.
4: I think, Jason, the key thing that I took away from Nabila is Deutsche Telecom will have majority control, because we always wonder there's never a merger, right? Who comes right. out sort of the winner, and, and if that's the who, – who's controlling the deal, then we sort of uh, know that uh, – I don't want to say a merger or an acquisition but sort of who's in charge shall there you we go. say
1: who's in charge is always the question uh, Nabila Ahmed MA reporter for Bloomberg in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio as is Matthew Canterman That's quite a song. Is that taking you back, Taylor?
4: Totally taking me back. I
1: love it. Well, true colors, you can see them in all sorts of different ways. And here to tell us more about a bit of a disruptive platform out there is Melanie Perkins. She is the CEO of Canva, uh, based in Sydney, Australia, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Melanie, welcome.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Nice to have you here. So some big news today. Uh, We want to get into the product, but uh, the news really... Uh, new money, new valuation, and a very influential new investor. I understand uh, involving a, a fund involving Mary Meeker of all people. Tell us about it.
6: Yeah, it's really exciting to have backing from such incredible investors. So Mary has scaled incredible companies that have had such huge global reach, um, and General Catalyst have joined as well as a new investor, um, and they have valued the company at two point five billion. So it's it's certainly growing. Talk
4: to us a little bit about the fundraising process. I'm folding over into Jason Kelly's private equity world a little bit here, but so much in the U.S. We've been talking about unicorns and some of these big tech IPOs. From your perspective, uh, down under, I should say, what has the funding environment been like?
6: It's pretty funny. In our earliest days, we spent three years pitching investors and just getting rejected hundreds of times. Um, but in this latest round, things certainly have changed. Um, and we've had incredible investors pitching us to uh, invest in Canva, um, telling us all the amazing things that they could do, and even coming in and flying to Sydney, Australia um, wow. to woo us.
1: All right, so tell us what they see. To un- help us understand what the product is and how we use it. Taylor said she signed up. So help us understand what it is.
6: Yeah, so Canva is an online design platform um, that enables you to design presentations and pitch decks and marketing materials. Even if you had absolutely no design experience, you can design something that looks very pro very quickly.
4: Which is good because I have no design experience and I was using it of course for personal use but I imagine most of your customers are small businesses, large businesses. Who do you really market yourself to?
6: Yeah, it's the entire, in the entire spectrum. So we've got more than 15 million people are using it every month. And we have over 80% of the Fortune 500 companies but then we've got 50,000 schools on board. So it's just the, the full spectrum because everyone needs to design lots of things these days.
1: Right. Well, and as I think you've pointed out in in some of your materials, we're sort of living in a different world when it comes to design. A, we want to sort of take control of it ourselves, but also companies as they look to maybe streamline operations, they don't have these big teams of people who they can lean on to design things for them. And this really puts it into the hands of, of folks who need this expertise but may not have it at arm's length from another department,
5: right?
6: Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, I was teaching design programs years ago, and I saw everyone struggling learning the basics, how to actually use the programs. And it seemed so archaic that these were desktop based and when you had the power of the internet. And so we really wanted to enable everything to be online and collaborative and give you all these beautiful high quality ingredients rather than being stuck with ugly clip art and really horrible font. Talk to me more about your business model. So I signed up. It
4: says I get free for 30 days. How are you competing against, like you were mentioning, a competitor where it's $200 a month? Where are you really getting the revenue from?
6: Yeah, so our goal is to provide a completely free-to-use platform. So you can actually design as many designs as you want completely free. Um, If you want, you can purchase an image for a dollar. And then if you are using Canva heaps, you can upgrade to something called Canva Pro, um, and that gives you access to hundreds of thousands of images Images and all sorts of things to increase your productivity.
1: So every unicorn is a butterfly in some cases. I know every you know, company is totally the same. But as you look to help people think about how you're disrupting this industry in a way that other people have disrupted other categories, who, who would you point to? Is this a Netflix type of thing or help me frame it?
6: Yeah, I guess our goal is to take the entire design ecosystem that's actually a combination of lots of different complex software and bring it together and then making that accessible to the whole world. Um, so I guess it's kind of in the Microsoft Office arena right. or the, um, you know, crossing lots of different things like stock photography libraries and stock layout libraries. But yeah, I guess we wanted to pull all of that together and then make it accessible to the whole world. So yeah, there's a, there's a few industries involved in that, I guess.
1: Well, great stuff. Uh, Congrats, especially on the new funding round. The company is Canva. It's based in Sydney, Australia. Melanie Perkins is the CEO joining us here in New York on a big news day.
4: Okay, so what catches my ear, not my eye, is the take it or leave it, which brings us down to a zero-sum game, game theory, The trade fights and Jason we've had a lot of conversations about the trade fight and what I like about our next guest Andy Brown he's our editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy is this is sort of a different take on on what this trade fight is what this trade fight really means and I think you put it great in your story that basically we don't know the game that we're playing when it comes to Huawei and and really the the trade fight in general kind of break us down your thought process here.
2: Yeah, so in in order to handicap the outcome of the U.S.-China trade negotiations, economists, market watchers are turning to game theory, right? So they're asking themselves questions like, which economy is most vulnerable to trade? And clearly that would be China. Or they may say, you know, which, which country politically could most withstand a prolonged standoff over trade? Well, that might actually be China with its authoritarian structures, right? And will Trump blink if the Wall Street melts down and so on and so forth? What I'm saying is this is all well and good, but it misses the bigger question, which is what is the game? And what is the game? That we don't know. (laughs) And that is, you know, so with this and a case in point is the move on uh, against Huawei. So U.S. technology companies that want to supply to Huawei are going to need to get a license from the Commerce Department to do so. And a lot of them have now stopped supplying. So Intel, Qualcomm has stopped supplying chips. Google, we understand, is no longer providing uh, updates to its software services, uh, covering maps, uh, covering uh, Gmail, and so on. But what, what, is, what is the Trump administration's game here? Is it, is it to use this, for instance, as leverage uh, to end the trade war? Or is he opening up a whole new front? In a technology cold war.
4: Talk to me about, let's pretend, and I'll play devil's advocate here for a minute, that the game is America makes products, China steals the technology, Trump administration's sick of it, and they're making this sort of their hard line. Does that theory still work?
2: Yeah, well, you know, right at the beginning of this whole trade conflict, it looked as though. Trump's goals were fairly well contained. uh, He wanted to bring down the Chinese trade surplus. He wanted to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. He wanted better access, a more level playing field in China. Uh, He wanted to protect American companies against IP theft. All of that was pretty well understood. But as this trade war has dragged on and on, it's clear that there's a much bigger agenda here, and it is linked to superpower rivalry, and right at the heart of this, you have technology. Well, and it also seems to be coming clearer and
1: clearer, and setting Huawei aside for one second, that as this trade war continues, and we're starting to see it hit literally people's walmart shopping lists and we're starting to see it hit farmers who clearly voted for president trump who are saying "Mm, now wait a second this is actually hurting my bottom line you're starting to see some some cracks in the armor does technology allow him sort of give him cover to some extent to say this is what this this is about this is the future and innovation and things like that don't mind that costs are going up over here
2: Uh, all of all of that and national security. Yes. I mean, don't forget Great you know, point. Th- the silent parties at the table now in the U.S.-China trade negotiation, military and security agencies. You know, the United States has got a huge problem here, which is that the wars of the future are going to be fought in space and cyberspace using technology that comes off the shelf. Now, these this technology is either Chinese products or products that contain Chinese software and components. And what Trump really wants to do is to yank those supplies supply chains out of China. That's a national security concern.
4: How successful can we be in doing that? I think for so often it really was Silicon Valley, you would China more and more as we're learning about how... china Exactly. I
1: learned that from your piece today. I
4: too. (laughs) And our supply chains are really connected. I mean, we just heard from Dave Wilson at the top of the hour that companies like Lumentum, for example, they've gone from 11% of their revenue from Huawei now to 18%. That's in a matter of like six months. How successful can we be in these fights when we're more and more dependent on these global supply chains?
2: You know, it's it's a really good question. And it all out... Technology Cold War is going to be hugely damaging for both the United States and China and the rest of the world. Uh, you know, technology supply chains now run through, uh, run through. We saw today. You know, uh, Qualcomm, Intel share price tank because Huawei is a major customer. Potentially, if Trump really wants to knock Huawei out of business, you're going to slow down the entire rollout of 5G around the world, which is dependent on Huawei. Uh, uh, networks so one of your inspirations
1: for this was a dinner you hosted last week in san francisco and that's uh part of the context for us bringing up this chinifornia uh comment that you make in your bloomberg opinion column what was the consensus from the group about where we go
2: from here in the short and midterm or was there one Well, you know, I think that uh, the people that we were talking to weren't directly impacted from this, but they were noticing all kinds of Mm second-order effects. Uh, Chinese researchers who don't really want to work for U.S. companies anymore and be seen as a security threat. Startups in the United States and Silicon Valley that are scared of taking Chinese money, even though they really badly need the money. Um, and then innovation that is not going to occur. You know, the most innovative place in the world is this digital kingdom called Chinaphonia, which fused Silicon Valley and Chinese tech hubs in Shenzhen and Zhongguancun in Beijing. Uh, and this is where all the big problems of the 21st century were being addressed, whether that's climate change or gridlock cities. Um, and, you know, there's this, there's this conceit. Uh, among a, a lot of people that the U.S. Uh, is providing all the innovation and invention to China, that the ideas flow one way, and that's really not the case at all. What I was hearing from people at the dinner was is that ideas are now flowing freely in both directions, right. and Silicon Valley is learning as much from China as China is learning from Silicon Valley.
4: It's quite oh, a change in the past 10 years. For Obama. sure.
1: And and raises some real questions about what happens if this decoupling of China-Fornia, as you say, continues to happen. Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. Always great to have you with us and get your insights. This is a fast-moving and complicated story, to say the least. <laughs> So, this is a fascinating story to me, Taylor, because it gets to really the heart, it feels like, of President Trump's negotiating style, his relationship with the leader of North Korea, has been one of the most fascinating geopolitical, I-, I dare say, sort of bromances to watch over the last couple of years, you know, these couple summits uh, that they have planned. Jillian Goodman is the politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. She joins us from our one studio down in Washington, D.C. to discuss a story in the magazine this week. It's already out on the terminal and on dot com. This cozy relationship making these talks a little tougher, Jillian. So what's going on?
7: Hi, Jen. Um, So yeah, I mean, both leaders now find themselves in a little bit of a weird position and that they've both sort of taken this extraordinary step of coming to meet face to face, no preconditions, saying that they fell in love, that they have this uh, terrific chemistry. Uh, But then after the talks broke down in Hanoi in February, you know, both of them are sort of uh, having to deal with, on the one hand, not wanting nuclear war, but on the other hand, not really having left themselves any other avenue to negotiate.
4: Uh, So Jillian, talk to me a little bit more about going inside the minds of these men, because you have two seemingly, uh, I don't want to say egocentric, but, you know, men that sort of stake their reputation on on winning and their egos and outcomes of deals, and at times it seems like they could get along, and then now recently seems like that strategy might be butting heads, right?
7: Well, it's interesting because both of them are still saying, you know, our relationship is fine. Uh, A few weeks ago, Kim got up in front of his parliament and said, you know, his relationship wasn't as hostile as as it may look like. And even last night on Fox News, Trump was still talking about the relationship with North Korea as a success because, you know, we saw two – Uh, short-range missile tests from North Korea uh, a couple weeks ago, but crucially, neither one of those violated their agreement with the U.S. to cease long-range missile tests. So they're both, they're like really walking this fine line. And
1: I have to say, Jillian, you know, one of the interesting elements of this is that there have been many people who have pointed to, say, the human rights record of North Korea, and some of it's behavior and some of this particular leader's behavior towards his own citizens and say, is it the wisest thing to say you've sort of fallen in love with this guy? What do political analysts that you guys have talked to say about that apparent disconnect between sort of the policy, the political, and dare I say the personal?
7: Yeah, I mean, Trump is certainly eager to call this a victory. Uh, But it's interesting, you know, in that speech that I mentioned before Parliament, Kim sort of gave Trump an ultimatum and said, you know, we'll give this to the end of the year and see if we can't make any progress. Of course, the end of this year is the beginning of 2020 when Trump will be running for re-election. And so the question is how much this will, you know, give his opponents an opportunity to needle him on this sort of what he still calls a success. But, you know, it's sort of hard to put it fully in the success column. We haven't achieved denuclearization. And as you say, Kim has this unsavory uh, human rights record. And so, you know, we we talked to some analysts who uh, said that that would be a liability for Trump, but that that was something that Kim was intentionally trying to sort of push on.
4: I wonder how tense it feels right now as we look at the past relationships or lack of relationship between the U.S. and North Korea. Felt like it was very tense. We were all watching the meeting. Seemed like we had a couple of meetings where
7: things died down. Does this feel like an escalation of those tensions once again? It does seem like attention-getting maneuvers, right? You know, you have Kim, you know, as I said, not crossing the line that he'd set with the Trump administration, but really rocking right up to it. So there are people who, who are speculating that this is his attempt to try to draw the U.S. into a third summit meeting, but there's really been no movement that we've seen on either side of that.
1: It's also interesting, Jillian, to think about this, and I know you have a responsibility for looking at the entire global political landscape here. It's also interesting to think about this vis-a-vis the Trump administrations and President Trump's own relationships with other world leaders who, shall we say, the U.S. has complicated relationships with, namely Russia and Hmm. Vladimir Putin, and sort of how that uh, has played out and, and some of the relationships. And this is not new news that he has with countries that were for a long time seemed to be allies whether that's Canada whether that's France or especially uh, Germany is this just kind of the state of where we are what what do you make of that
7: I mean you know it's a big Question. Uh, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, Trump is just eager to make progress and show that he's yeah. made progress or at least say that he's made progress. And, you know, with Kim also saying very publicly that, you know, he and Trump are getting along, everything's fine, sort of publicly playing down tensions, uh, I think that's just what that seems to be what Trump is looking for. He's looking for a win. He thinks he got one by getting to the table and by seizing these long range tests. Um, And, you know, as far as the rest of the global picture, I mean, you know, as you say, it's all everything's sort of been thrown into the air.
1: Great stuff. Jillian Goodman, politics editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us from our ninety-nine-one studio down in the nation's capital. You can check out the story, Trump and Kim's cozy relationship makes nuclear toss talks tougher, easy for me to say. It will be in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week, available now on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. I'm in my car. i turn on
7: the radio. How about you let me drive?
5: Oh, no, 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 no. Who's
7: gonna drive you home?
1: And it is time for The Drive to the Close. Kevin Miller back with us, Chief Investment Officer out at Evaluator Funds. He's based out in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio today with myself and Taylor Riggs. Kevin, great to have you back with us.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: All right. So as you look around, and we were talking about this a little bit before we came on air, you know, Every minute it feels like there's a twist or a turn to this market, a twist or a turn to global economics. How do you sort of rate what worries you the most at this moment?
0: Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to look at fundamentals and look to see, you know, are we seeing an increase in unemployment? Is inflation picking up? Or, you know, how is the housing industry holding up? What are mortgage rates looking like? And that will help. Get you over the speculation you're experiencing through some of these headline issues with the China trade agreement and and what's going on today. Um, but the, so the fundamentals are key. Unfortunately, we are living in a period right now where emotion is so strong that it can swing the market, uh, you know, one and a half percent just within one day.
4: Well, I love that you brought that up because it for me always comes down to fundamentals. And I sometimes wonder. If our biggest risk is the ability to talk ourselves into a recession, because you're not seeing it in the data, and yet we're all worked up about these headlines, and sentiment feels so volatile in either direction.
0: That's correct. I mean, not to age myself, but I I started in the business back in 86, and in 87, the market went down 30-some percent in one day, and by the end of the year, the market was up by 2%, and people didn't make changes. Why? Because they didn't have daily accounting, they didn't have internet, they didn't have toll-free access to their account. So it's too bad, but we have so much information and so much access. I do think some people get ahead of themselves and make changes that if they would just be a little bit more patient, it would work its way out. And so... Given that, we also hear – we heard
1: from a bunch of companies, well-known companies today, Nike, Adidas among them, 173 companies I think, sending a letter to the administration essentially saying bad idea on Mm -hmm. these tariffs. Like Mm -hmm. this is going to hurt our business. We're going to have to pass this through. We heard from Walmart last week talking about how they're going to deal with it every CEO as we get into the next round of earnings is going to have to face this in one form or another. So are we just waiting to see what the impact is? And and how do we gauge that until we have the numbers? Or do we just wait?
0: Well, I think you're going to start seeing corporations cut back on where they expect their projections to go going forward. And you're probably going to see slowdown in capital expenditures until we know exactly what's going on. And so I think if we do not get an agreement with China, uh, I mean, not to just just Probably define it as quickly as I can. I would say we'd probably go back to a, a, an Obama-type market where mm. we'd see GDP uh, GDP maybe at two two and a half percent. It, but I think it's going to feel better because more of us are going to be employed. You know, wow. where back then we, it didn't feel that good because there are still people trying to get decent jobs. And and I, I think you're going to see our GDP numbers go down to the low twos. And uh, but because we're still employed and we're, we're gainfully you know going after it, I think. It'll, it'll work its way out. But this China trade agreement, if I was China, I'd be very concerned about what's going to happen. Uh, if, they, if they don't take action and our corporations start moving out, that country's going to be in, in, in a world of hurt. It's going to be a year and a half, two years, three years. But I mean, it, it could potentially happen to them.
4: So you also mentioned CapEx, which we did a story this morning that I think we're about 92% of the way through earnings season. CapEx, last quarter on average only grew about three percent year-over-year which was the lowest rate of capex spending since the second quarter of 2017. in part that's helping the bottom line that's probably why we saw earnings growth when we weren't expecting earnings growth how concerned are you that we're not seeing the capex spend the way we used to and in particular it's like apple and microsoft microsoft that are cutting those capex by double digits
0: yeah that's that's significant and if it's prolonged it will have an impact on the market in general uh I do think that, you know, the tailwind that we had from the tax cuts year over year, our earnings were, you know, in the 20s, well, that that wind that we had at our our backside is now nothing more than just a breeze. And, in fact, we have to be careful that we don't get inverted and start running into a headwind. Uh, But there's going to be a definite slowdown in, in where this market is going to go without some form of stimulation, whether it comes from the Fed or some form of an agreement.
1: So then how do you invest into a market like this? How do you think about risk? How do you think about allocating, maybe changing up a mix as it relates to equities, fixed income, and, and- cash, for that matter. Yeah, well, it, it
0: depends, obviously, first off, sure. the time horizon. You know, when are you thinking of spending the money? Uh, we, at our funds, we have reduced our allocation into foreign equities and emerging markets based on the lack of an agreement, you know, coming to, a, to a head. And then from a fixed income perspective, we've taken some of the credit off the table and we're going longer term and, and higher quality, looking at more duration. We do feel the Fed is going to keep the rate at this level. Uh, We'd really like to see them discontinuing uh, their um, um, unwinding of the balance sheet before they make any other moves. But uh, it's, it's uh, right now, I'd go longer in the duration and higher in the quality and the so fixed income. So with
4: longer in the duration, one of your calls as well as you do see the potential for the yield curve to invert later this year. Last week, of course, in the height of the big sell-off, we had a small inversion, about three basis points on three-month tenure. We're back in positive territory, but only by three or four basis points. Yeah. How much of that is an economic recession indicator, and how much of it is basically – a Fed that's not as dovish as we thought, and then on the long end, not getting the type of inflation we should see, and so the curve naturally is pretty flat.
0: Yeah, it's the, the nerve, the nerve, the curve is naturally a little flat. The nerve of that curve. The, yeah, the nerve <laughs> of the curve. Uh, but the th- situation is is that typically when the the curve does invert. You know, you don't see a recession on average for 14 months after that. We have to take into consideration the fact that we went through three significant quantitative easings. So our 10-year yield may be 20 to 30 basis points less than it would have been if we didn't have that. So then you have to take that into consideration. I wouldn't be concerned, would not be concerned about the inverted yield curve until it got inverted by 15 to 20 basis points. And then that would start getting my attention.
1: Kevin Miller, Chief Investment Officer at Evaluator Funds, based out in Minneapolis, here with us in New York. Always good. Catch up with you. The Nerve of the Curve isn't that the name of the <laughs> band you're starting with, Tom Keane? That's
4: a great either name of a band or a restaurant or something. Could be the
1: name of your novel, I you know, like where it. you write sort of a romana clef about uh, working here at Bloomberg. <laughs> I can see it. Your days on surveillance. I, I love think, it. I, I it love it. In all sense.
4: seriousness, I really like that. For the first time, I've sort of heard that the flat yield curve is more of a structural shift that we've seen, and not so much of a huge indicator of an economic recession. That it doesn't need to be inverted by two basis points, but we're looking at fifteen or. 20 20 basis points, really, before you start to get nervous the way we used to.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.